Hi, I'm Valerie, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hi, and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real scientists answer your beauty questions and give you an insider's look at the beauty product industry. This is episode number 173. I'm your host, Valerie George, and on today's episode, we're gonna cover a couple news stories we found interesting in the cosmetics industry, and then we'll answer a couple of your beauty questions about, do silicones dry out your skin? Why do white hairs on my head turn reddish at the ends? And what ingredients should I look for in a sunscreen while I'm exercising? But first, I want to say hi to the co-host of the show, Perry Romanowski. Hi, Perry. Hello, Valerie. How's it going? Oh, it's been raining in California. I know I know we talk about the weather a lot, and I told myself we wouldn't talk about that today, but it's so unusual to have rainy weather here. You know, I saw this movie yesterday, which is about California. It was some, some old rock movie where <laughs> it was just... Quite ridiculous, quite like frankly. Sanf- rocks like uh, the rock or rocks like mudslides? Yeah, uh, Dwayne Johnson, The Rock. Oh, and oh. Somehow there was this earthquake, and I think it was called San Andreas or something. I, oh. It was, it was just ridiculous. That sounds Not a pretty lot of, bad. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of breaking the laws of physics in there. <laughs> that usually happens. Indeed. Well, Actually, it's, uh, it's a little snowy here in Chicago, but I'm looking forward to going to Florida tomorrow. Ooh, what's in Florida? Well, I'm actually going out there to give a talk to uh, to a company out there about the topic of clean beauty products. Very interesting. Yeah, I will actually be giving that talk, uh, or a version of that talk, out in California in September. So maybe we'll get to record a live show. Very cool. The talk in September, I do know, is for the Society of Cosmetic Chemists, California chapter, one of our dinner meetings. So if you live in SoCal and you want to hear Perry talk in person and meet me, that's where I live, uh, we'll give a shout out to the details when that time comes. What do you think? Yeah, I like it. Maybe we could do like a live recorded show. Cool, cool. In front of a studio audience. Ah. (laughs) And we we won't have to give the applause sign because everyone will be cheering anyway. (laughs) That's right. No, maybe not. Well, let's get into our beauty science news. So the Royal Society of Chemistry has a challenge for you. It's actually an ongoing challenge, not anything new, but here's how you can win 1 million pounds. Yeah, that's like uh, $1.3 million or something, right? Uh, Yeah, pre-tax, we'll say. Uh, So they have this ongoing competition, and... Thank you so much for reminding me that this competition is still going on. I read about it a while ago and just sort of forgot about it because it's not really a viable contest in my mind. But the Royal Society... Well, it's viable uh, according to beauty marketers, right? (laughs) Yeah. So the Royal Society of Chemistry has this ongoing program where they are willing to award one million pounds to the first company or person that can produce a chemical-free product. Whoa chemical free i'm surprised they haven't paid that out yet i see chemical free advertised all the time well they must not know about this contest uh (laughs) the royal society of chemistry uh started this program in 2010 and unsurprisingly um if you couldn't tell our sarcasm no company has won the award thus far so if you have any ideas and you're up to winning 1.3 million uh, based on today's exchange rate u.s dollars head to the Royal Society of Chemistry website and look for their chemical-free competition. And Valerie, why do you figure people have, nobody's won this? I mean, we see products all the time advertised for chemical-free. 
Well, no secret. Uh, there's just no such thing as chemical free in today's world. If it has water, if it's anhydrous, it, everything is composed of chemicals at some point in time. Exactly. Chemical free is just a, a silly, meaningless marketing term, which uh, most chemists find offensive. <laughs> Yeah, and for, for me, it's meaningless. I, I really get sad when I, I see the terminology used because I think it's misleading. And then, well, you have people say, well, you know what I mean. Well, if you take the term literally, which, you know, people can, it just, it does all industries that utilize chemicals, which is every industry a huge disservice. Well, if I ever come up with a chemical-free product, I'm sure I'm going to get that uh, one million pounds. There was a story that caught my interest this week. It was uh, actually, they presented this at the electronics show, which everyone was talking about because there's beauty products all over. But uh, you, know how, you know how facial masks are all the rage these days? Mm, I'm a user myself. They, there's also this uh, customization trend, right, in beauty products? Yeah, I could see that. Everyone wants something made for them. Yeah, exactly. There's actually some stores where you can go in and get lipstick and you can like drip, drop in whatever extracts you want and then you get your own customized thing. So customization is a thing, masks are a thing, and well, it looks like Neutrogena is trying to cash in on both of these trends by launching a customized 3D facial mask that fits perfectly on your face. That seems really cool. I have an, um, an uneven face, I think, or <laughs> really? I know my head is really large. Anyway. Um, Wait, have you like, would you get like a tape measure out and you measure like little sections of your face? Well, sometimes I just look at my face and I'm like, oh, it seems uneven and I can never get the regular sheet masks to fit very well. So I always have to like cut the eyes or tug and pull at them. Wow. So this sounds like something for me. I, I wonder if this is a problem that a lot of people have. Write in and let us know. Do you have problems putting on facial masks? Is your face crooked? <laughs> <laughs> well, Neutrogena is going to fix that. It's, it seems like last year they launched an app called uh, Skin360, which scans your face and it tells you whether and where you need a little extra moisturizing. Well, this new development, it's, it's an app that's called Mask ID, and it takes it a step further by using that information to create a customized facial mask. So by customized, they mean that it will have these slits that per fit perfectly over your eyes, your nose and mouth, uh, and I guess that's what they mean. And also, they use data collected by the app to suggest certain ingredients on the different zones of your face. You know, they've got masks with like ingredients like vitamin C, hyaluronic acid, niacinamide, you know, all of, all, of the, all the hero ingredients. I mean, it sounds pretty involved, if you ask me. It also sounds like a pretty good marketing story that doesn't seem to be backed up by much science. Like, I do wonder how much of a difference do these masks really make? Hmm, that's interesting. Why do you think that? Sure, a mask is going to deliver a certain level of an ingredient. You, you leave it on for longer, so it gives it more of a chance to penetrate more. But at some point, your face is going to be saturated, and even more material isn't going to help, right? And, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm just skeptical that masks make that much of a difference. I This is certainly influenced by my exposure to the, uh, the hair care world, where they'd have these intensive hair treatments, you know, which... When we made them, they were just basically thickened version of standard conditioners. Then we put it in a pack and we call it a, a an intensive pack. So I, I think it's more, more of the experience than the actual benefits. And I actually looked around in the scientific literature and I couldn't find anything 
published. I'd love to see a study that looked at the application of like a facial mask as compared to a daily moisturizer and see if there were any measurable or noticeable differences. Yeah, I can imagine you could do like a half face study and one one side is the mask, one side is the, the moisturizer. Maybe you could see differences. I, I just haven't seen any study like that. I mean, maybe it'd be more complicated than that, but this this was this is what makes me skeptical. Well, I think it certainly depends not only what ingredients are intended to be used in these masks. You know that it depends on concentration. Is oh, this the correct course. delivery mechanism for that ingredient or in that region on your face? I think having a routine is half the battle in, in using these treatments. So I think maybe for people who are looking to establish a routine or something more customized, they'll see an improvement just by the routine itself in combination with the product. I'm maybe a little less skeptical because I am a consumer of face masks and I really enjoy them, although Sometimes I reflect on the fact that I paid $12 for butylene <laughs> glycol with an extract. But, you, you know, there are a couple masks that are, are not based on butylene glycol or PG or any of those other things. And I can feel a difference uh, depending on the type of cloth that's used or whatnot. So I think it'll be interesting to see how this actually works. Yeah, I, I don't mean to sound like I'm just poo-pooing this and being dismissive. I would really like to see some sort of scientific study done this. And I just, there isn't a published study. And this kind of thing kind of just reeks to me as a good story and a good experience, but maybe you're not really getting any noticeable benefits. Hmm, maybe we'll see some studies pop up in peer-reviewed papers coming up with the onset of sheet masks. You know, it takes time for these studies to come out. I'm sure this podcast here is going to prompt that new research. <laughs> oh, I hope. Uh, the one thing that is interesting about this technology, and this goes with any time that you're using an app or anything that's gathering information, and they did mention this in the article, is the whole privacy factor. What are they doing with the information? And I'm huge on privacy. I actually almost started a company called Mailbox Diet about yeah. six years ago. It's actually a really cute logo, but uh, essentially I don't think people think about, or maybe they don't even care and it's irrelevant about what's done with their information. So the company says that they do encrypt the data that's collected and they take privacy seriously. I scourged their website to see if they had any more information of what do they do with the data? Is it used to um, aggregate and better recommend products for you over time? Is it an extended period of time, a short period of time? How long do they keep the data? Um, it, it's really interesting to me. So the data that they're collecting is information about your specific face, right? I mean, I, I, Correct. I, I guess you could probably use this, like police could use this for facial recognition or something, right? Yeah. And so what are they doing with it? Are they associating your name with the data? Are they taking your information away from the data and saying, this is just skin that has big pores and needs moisturization? Um, because the device isn't out yet, it's very unclear as to yeah. what they're doing with that data. Most of the companies that are collecting data like this, though, are, are pretty loosey-goosey with the security and what they're doing with the data. Yeah, and I always supply fake information anyway, just so that it can't be, you know, attributed to me, but um, you can call me paranoid, I guess. Ah, that's, that's pretty good. You know, paranoid, that was uh, my original first name, paranoid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, well, in uh, tune with uh, something we talked about a couple weeks ago, there was another article in 
in People Magazine, a headline a little bit older, but it said, do women spend $15,000 on beauty products in a lifetime? While the story's older, the numbers do seem right. According to the magazine, people will spend an average of $15,000 on beauty products, which could seem kind of high since in the video they just focus on color cosmetics, but I, right. I think that number includes all beauty products. And I, I think you did a little math, right, Perry? I, I thought that, that number seemed a little high, but then if you do a little math, you say you spend 50 bucks a month on beauty products, what is that, $600 a year? It's so over four year, 40 years, that's what, $24,000? So maybe that 15,000 is just a little too low, right? And I, I don't know, I don't think it's that outrageous when you look at it over that long a time. It seems kind of low. Yeah, especially if you think about how much you spend on Starbucks or cab rides or whatever else else it is you're buying. I would say I'm a little bit higher of a spender. Yeah. I do love products. Also, it's part of my job. And I did want to take just one second to give our audience some pro tips on how to handle buying all of these products and not having your spouse or partner notice. Well, it's a public service announcement. Go go ahead. Bella. Yeah, I have years of experience trying to dupe Mr. Cosmetic Chemist into <laughs> not realizing all the products that I buy. So one thing is when you buy it from the store, it might come in a box or a secondary package. Remove that box and put it in the recycling bin even before you take the product inside. Now, sometimes it is hard to part with a box because it's so beautiful or it has information on it. You will get caught bringing a box product <laughs> into the house, but a product without a box, someone like Mr. Cosmetic Chemist may not know. You could also throw it in your shoulder bag and he'll say, oh, where did you get that? Oh, this thing, it's been in my purse. It is uh, a truth, although what's that called when I guess you admit the truth prior? The, <laughs> the other pro tip is once you throw something away, you replace it with something new. He may not notice the shape of the bottle or package. He'll just know that there's not more or less products sitting on the shelf. So on your shelf, there's like a gap. And so you can just fill that gap, right? Immediately. Because if you leave it too long, he'll notice that you added something back in. And the last tip, which as of recent hasn't really worked out for me, is to say it's for competitive analysis at work. <laughs> and I was able to use this one actually quite a bit like, oh, this thing, it's for work. I'm analyzing competitor products. Until one point, Mr. Cosmetic Kevin said, I don't understand why you need lipsticks when you make hair products. And that's when I knew I was busted and I couldn't use that one anymore. But now you can use it again because you're doing the beauty brains. Ah, true. Thank you so much. You're an accomplice. You're such an accomplice. Anyway, uh, let's get on to some questions. All right. Our first question is an ingredient question. It comes to us from Tace. Tace asks, do silicones in cosmetics dry your skin? And also, please explain the difference between silica and silicones. Thanks. I always like when people say thanks. That's really nice of them. Yeah, yeah. We're, we like to be pleasant here on the Beauty Brains. So, <laughs> you know, let's start with that second part of the question first, because that's the easier one to answer. What is the difference between silica and silicones? So silicones are compounds that are derived from the element silicon, 
which is the 14th uh, element on the periodic table of elements, Si. It's located just below carbon, which means it will have some of the same chemical bonding characteristics of carbon. Like carbon, it has four positions in which it can form chemical bonds. So materials called silanes are just a string of these silicon atoms bonded together, Si, Si, Si. And so then they're all surrounded by hydrogen. So that's silane. So sometimes you'll see silanes mentioned too. But these ingredients are highly reactive, so they don't last very long out there in nature. But instead, most of the silicones that you're going to find in cosmetics are based on a, a silicon-oxygen-silicon bonding. So S-I-O-S-I. -S in nature, silicon exists in a material called quartz, in fact, quartz and silica are pretty much the same thing. So now you know silica is just silicon bonded to oxygen. Silica is actually the major component of sand, and it's used for abrasiveness, so for exfoliating products, for example. But it also has a light diffusing properties, and it can also absorb oil. So that's the cosmetics uses of silica. Now, silicones are made from silica, and they can take on many different forms. It could be solids or liquids and even gases. Uh, and through a variety of chemical reactions, we make things like dimethicone, cyclomethicone, and then all of the other silicones that are used in cosmetics. Right, so we take this silicone as a basic building, building block and we functionalize it. I think you've heard us use that term before where Okay, we have silicone, which is just a generic term. I don't like it when people lump them all in together, but you can make right. them into different shapes, add different atoms on to give them different uses, and we'll go into a bit of the variety of ways that you can use silicones. So there are a wide variety of reasons that we put silicones in cosmetics. Probably one of the most important ones in, in both hair care and skin care is that Silicones have a, a great ability to lower the surface tension of both oils and waters, so that makes it the, the product, it spreads a lot easier on the surface. So one of the reasons we added is for spreadability. The low surface tension also makes silicones feel more slippery and lighter on the skin. So we add them to the products to improve what we call skin feel or feel of the product on the skin or hair. For hair products, they can also make the fibers feel less rough and smooth and more lubricated. They're an excellent product to throw in hair products. I know they get a bad rap, but you know we, we add them because people like the way that makes their hair feel. They really work. Yeah. Another thing that silicones can do in products is that they really can't affect the shine. Many of the silicones are not water soluble, so they can leave a film or on whatever surface that they're applied to. Now, this property is really useful for making the hair look more shiny, and it can also provide a shiny effect on the skin when you incorporate it into makeup. Silicones are also useful for occlusion, so when they're used at a high enough level, silicones can create a barrier on the skin, which can protect it from chemical exposure and other environmental insults. This also can provide a great deal of moisturization through an occlusive action on the skin. Well, one final reason we add silicones in there is to give slip. This is another consequence of the low surface tension, and so for detangling hair or getting a comb or brush through the hair, silicones are great for that. Okay, so that's why they're used, but do they dry the skin? Part one of the question. 
And the answer to that is no, there isn't any evidence that they are drying. In fact, I looked through the research report done in the CIR, the Cosmetic Ingredient Review of silicones, and there was no significant report of a topical silicone from a cosmetic causing any dermal irritation or dryness. In fact, silicones, uh, like dimethicone, are occlusive agents, and you would expect them to actually moisturize uh, the skin. So, no, despite what you might have heard, uh, silicones in your skin care typically would not cause skin dryness, unless you happen to have an uncommon allergy to them, but, you know, this could be true of any ingredient. Next question. Donna wants to know why her white hair, only in the front, is turning reddish on the ends, and is there anything besides a chelating shampoo the brains can recommend? Gray hair appears gray because it lacks the pigment used to naturally color hair, known as melanin. Melanin is produced deep in the hair follicle by a cell called melanocytes, and as we age through various mechanisms, the melanocytes stop producing melanin so the hair becomes gray or white. For some people, it's not uncommon for their gray hair to continue to shift color. This is why it's really hard when you see products that are advertising that, you know, they can just reverse the graying of your hair. For, for it to be able to reverse gray, the graying of hair, you'd have to get into the follicle and then restart those melanocytes to start kicking out color again. And there just isn't anything that we found that does that. Yeah, there are a couple ingredients that suppliers have done research on in the in vitro stages, but I, I just really don't think they work. And even if they right. did, you're making a physiological change in the body. And so as a cosmetic product, you just can't talk about it. Right. Totally would be a drug. So aside from hair coloring your hair physically, hair color can take on unwanted hues uh, for a variety of reasons, a big one being due to metal buildup in the hair. Hair naturally does contain these trace minerals and metals like iron, copper, magnesium, and lead. If you took uh, a child's hair, so someone who's young, maybe in all of a lot of environmental exposure, you could um, have the hair analyzed and find trace metals naturally. It's not bad. It's not. It just is what it is from our it's diet. Just nature. Exactly. They come from our diet, environment, medicines, etc. So these metals are positively charged and they stick to the negatively charged hair. That's how they get stuck in there. They get attracted to these negatively charged sites and they just start to bind. I imagine living in the city, I get a lot more of that. Actually, you live in LA, you get a lot more of that binding yeah. in your hair, right? Don't, don't drink the water. I think that was a, a Dave Matthews song, but also a slogan if you live in a place with really bad water. But this total phenomena is unavoidable because we're exposed to metals in so many different aspects of our lives, but the extent of the metal uptake in the hair can have some factors, how much you take up. So for example, how much exposure do you have? How hard is your water? What's the air like outside? what kind of hair damage you have, meaning how many negatively charged sites you have on the hair and how sure. porous your hair is, where the hair is just open and susceptible to taking items in the hair. So over time, metals can build up beyond the normal levels in hair and then you start to get a hue cast of the hair, hue being a color. And my first- Oh, not that, not that actor from uh, that Love Actually movie? Oh, <laughs> no, wrong kind of hue. So uh, the first right. time I ever experienced this wasn't myself, but in high school, as a freshman taking gym class, you had to pick a variety of sports to take, and my high school happened to have a pool. And of course, being a low person on the totem pole, 
I got sucked into doing all of the swimming courses that we had. Uh And I was with this set of twins in my grade. And they had the bleachiest blonde hair at the time. It was a very distinct look of the 90s. So anyway, the whole semester, they kept really trying to avoid exposing their hair to the water. And sure enough, at the end of the semester, one of them had a greenish tinge to the hair because of the swimming pool exposure. And that's a sign of copper accumulation, like how copper forms that nice green patina. Right. Copper oxide, I think. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened in her hair. So copper left this green tinge. Lead can tend to accumulate and look black, and iron can accumulate and look reddish or rusty colored. Other minerals like calcium and magnesium are colorless. So my reasoning to Donna's situation that her gray hair is turning red on the tips is pure speculation. I'm just using this scientific reasoning because I don't know Donna's hair, I don't know her environmental factors, but anything reddish in the hair can be iron uptake in the hair. Yeah, and that would make sense because her hair likely has um, those metal ions in it. Correct. And typically it's not just gray hair that uptakes iron all by itself aside from your hair that has pigmentation in it naturally, usually the whole hair is taking up iron and you can just see it the most in the gray hair because it doesn't have any background color in it. Right. Also, it may be localized to the tips of her hair and not up the whole length of the strand because the tips are more porous than the rest of the hair and maybe it's uptaking more iron. And if the front of her hair and the tips have more environmental exposure, maybe due to the way she styles her hair, it's always facing the sun that can amplify the problem. The tips of the hair are always the most damaged. Yep, they're the most aged. I call it weathered, um, like a little old tarp that you've left outside, but the tips tend to take the worst of everything. Metal irons aren't the only thing responsible for shifting color of hair. I mentioned maybe it's the way Donna's styling her hair. Sunlight can weather the hair by causing a series of reactions in the hair fiber. We call it photo degradation. There's a ton of studies on it. It's really evident in gray hair when gray hair turns yellow. That's a sign of light exposure. It's been studied extensively in wool and human keratin where the light hits the hair fiber or the wool and in the keratin protein, you start to get photo degradations of amino acids like tryptophan. Tryptophan starts to go through a series of reactions and then the end products of this reaction leave a yellowish tinge in the fiber. And of course, since gray hair is virtually colorless, it's most evident there. Of course, this is happening in other hair too that's colored. Additionally, you're getting oxidizing molecules that are forming as byproducts when tryptophan starts to degrade and those can be oxidizing the iron metals that are naturally in Donna's hair, causing it to be reddish. Is it true this is worse uh, around Thanksgiving time? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's a good one. That's a good Uh, one. Uh, That would be a a funny April Fool's joke. Okay, so (laughs) Donna has this problem. How does she combat it? So if her challenge is indeed metal buildup in the hair, she can use a chelating shampoo that has an ingredient in it that is specifically designed to grab the metal ions from her hair fiber and removing them. Most regular shampoos aren't gonna be good enough to do this. Most shampoos, if you look at the label, do contain chelating agents, but they're just not in a level that's designed for metal removal from the hair. Yeah, and if you're looking for a chelating agent, you can look for something like disodium EDTA or tetrasodium EDTA. Exactly, but unless the shampoo is specifically designed and marketing to remove metals from the hair, 
I don't think it'll be in enough at a sufficient level to solve your problem. Right, exactly. We we put chelating agents in there for reasons other than uh, taking care of uh, stuff out of your hair. Uh, it's actually in there in a lot of products to help uh, improve the preservative system. I don't want to get into recommending brands on the air and that kind of stuff, but if you really aren't sure what product is right to take metals out of the hair, you can message me privately on Instagram at cosmetic underscore chemist and I can refer to you a couple. Yeah, all right. Looks like we have an audio question, huh? I love these audio questions. All right, you gonna run the tape? That's me <laughs> pressing play, all right. Wait, people don't use tapes anymore, right? I'm, I'm dating myself by saying the tape. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I didn't even think twice, so I guess I'm old too. <laughs> You're not that old. <laughs> hi, Perry, hi, Valerie. Thanks so much for all of the great information that you provide on the beauty brains. I am contacting you today to ask what ingredients I should look for in a facial sunscreen that I can wear while exercising. Uh, like Perry, I'm an avid runner and I find that many of the sunscreens that I wear while running sting my eyes, cause me to break out and or wash off when I've been sweating a lot. And I want to uh, be safe and find a sunscreen that would be more effective for me. So I wondered if you could offer some advice on what kinds of sunscreen would work best for people who are looking to protect their faces while exercising outdoors um, and hopefully not getting too much acne as a result. Thanks again. Well, thanks, Jules, for that. It's always good to hear from another runner. Ooh, wouldn't it be perfect if Jules joggled? That'd be a really <laughs> good uh, online personality name, Jules the Joggler. Oh, that, that would be a good one. <laughs> So this is an uh, interesting question about sunscreens. And to tell you the truth, uh, this question is more of an aesthetic question than it is scientific. But there are some science aspects of it. One of the things that Jules mentioned was that the sunscreens that she's used, they get in her eye and they sting. If that's one of the problems that you're having... I'm going to say stick to the zinc oxide and the titanium dioxide sunscreens. The ones with the hydrocarbon sunscreens like avobenzone or oxybenzone, uh, those have been shown to be stinging if they get in your eyes or they can even irritate sensitive skin. Yeah, whereas the zinc oxide and titanium dioxide are physical particles that yeah, sure, they can get into your eye, but they're not going to elicit an irritation effect like avobenzone or oxybenzone do. Yeah, exactly. And I have to say, I avoid using that distinction, physical sunscreens and chemical sunscreens, because I think it really confuses people because they're all chemical sunscreens. It's just that that's the way people talk about sunscreens. So the chemist in me tries to avoid physical and chemical because so that so I use the term hydrocarbon sunscreens because that's what those are. Yeah, I'm guilty. I know we talked about that earlier with the whole chemical-free language, but it's so easy to slip into language that most consumers are using when we're talking about things. So chemical and physical sunscreen, I know people understand. In looking back, I realize it's not the most correct nomenclature. So I do apologize, but I hope you all understood what I meant. I'm just being pedantic. And, and, and actually, <laughs> the thing is, like you are communicating the way the consumer would communicate and that's what they know and so when I throw out a word like hydrocarbon sunscreens they're like what the hell are those <laughs> sounds really fancy uh, so I am a user of these zinc oxide and titanium dioxide sunscreens for certain yeah. situations and one of the problems I do find with them is that they can be visible so right. yeah so 
So it's like you. So do you look like a, a Marceau Marceau? Like you're doing a miming act or something? <laughs> yeah, as I'm running, that's my whole shtick. I'm a a mime <laughs> runner. No, but you know you can get a a slightly ghostly hue. Sometimes I note if is if it has a lot of titanium dioxide in it. There's definitely this weird cast in my skin. There are nanoparticle size zinc products that are invisible and perfectly fine to use if you want to avoid that ghostly look. I know that sometimes, depending on the brand of the sunscreen, I can get milia, which are these little white dots encapsulated in the skin from using them. Yeah. So I try to switch it up every once in a while. It's a good idea. If you're using the sunscreen on your face, uh, of course, like a lighter formula is going to feel better when you're smearing on your face. And you want, of course, to look for if there's claims that something is non-comedogenic, you can feel better about it. That doesn't really guarantee that it won't cause problems because non-comedogenic doesn't have a legal meaning. But maybe it reduces your chances because the companies has gone through the step of saying, you know, making this claim. And, you know, if it, if it doesn't work, it, that would at least get them some bad press. Although I should say just because somebody doesn't claim non-comedogenic doesn't mean that it will be comedogenic either. Yeah, that's something you actually have to test and try to get that claim study for. And most people just don't do that extra investment. I saw a lot of like natural sunscreens. I'd stay away from things that have a lot of herbal extracts in it. Well, these ingredients, they're all supposed to be natural, but they are packed with dozens of naturally occurring chemicals, any one of which can cause skin irritation and re reactions. So I always encourage people to go for a minimalism strategy. You don't need herbs and extracts in a sunscreen. You just need the sunscreen. Yeah, and some ingredients can degrade in the sun, just like hair photodegrades in the sun. So I, I know that there are a few essential oils or not necessarily the essential oil itself, but components in them. So I love your minimalism strategy. And then also look for something that's fragrance-free. You know, fragrance, uh, fragrance ingredients can irritate the skin, and, and they can be responsible for some of the stinging. Uh, and, you know, the sunscreens don't smell that bad without a fragrance, if, if you don't mind. The other thing that can matter is the way it's applied. I personally have no problem just closing my eyes and spraying, like, sunscreen right in my face. Mm, my I can't wife do finds that. that. Mm. My wife finds that hor horrifying, but I don't care. Uh, that, that I should also say, like, just because that's my experience doesn't mean uh, you should necessarily adopt it, but that's what I do. Yeah, don't try that at home, kids. I'm not a typical uh, cosmetic consumer, but I, there there are also other options. Uh, like, you get a stick or a roll-on product, and then so, so keep that away from your eyes, and so that could help prevent that problem. Also, I... Uh, I should look for sunscreens that have film-forming polymers in there because the film-forming polymer is going to help keep the sunscreen in place, and so that'll help with uh, being waterproof and preventing it from running when you're sweating. So look for an ingredient like uh, that has the word cross-polymer or copolymer in there. I saw I was looking at a few sunscreens, but they use dimethicone vinyl dimethicone cross-polymer. That was one that you could see there. Yeah, that should work too. And then one other thing is, you know, I recommend wearing a visor. Uh, and, or, a, or a headband and sunglasses. You, you won't have to put as much sunscreen around your eyes and it's gonna prevent the, the sweat from going into your eyes. So those are my, uh, my sunscreen running tips. What about running in the dark? Running in the dark. Uh, <laughs> Just avoid the sun altogether, lead a vampiric life. Right, you don't need to use as much sunscreen when you're running in the dark. <laughs> All right, last time we were on the show, we talked about 
leaving reviews on iTunes to help others find the show. And we talked about maybe even reading some of the reviews. So Ooh, we did iTunes reviews. Yay. Yeah, we did pick two reviews. Um, if you do love the show or you have some criticisms of the show, we're open to that as well. Please do go to Although iTunes. Although we, we like the non-criticism stuff more. <laughs> but... Yeah, we tend to like them more, but... Well, you know what's funny about criticism is for like you need like 10 positive things just to offset one negative thing going to a spiral of depression well i think the good news is we have a lot of people who love the show that's evident from itunes there are some criticisms and we are looking to make sure that we improve the sound quality and all the other things that maybe detract from the overall experience of the show so i did talk about the positives yeah i did pick a review mostly because it mentioned me at the very end. I'm just kidding. But I really loved what Bees Etc. had to say. This podcast is a must listen for anyone interested in skincare, hair care, dental hygiene, or makeup. The sense of humor and genuine desire to provide scientific explanations for cosmetics, as opposed to the faux science a lot of skincare brands in particular push, is fun and a breath of fresh air. It's not condescending or boring, but it is very informative. Well done. So glad it's back. Love the new co-host. That's Aww. me. <laughs> That's right. If you're listening, Randy, uh, you know. <laughs> and we got another one. Chris S. says, I work in the pet grooming industry and educate pet stylists on canine skin and coat care and topical products. Mm, idea for a future show, huh? Maybe next time. Yeah. This podcast gives me a steady source of factual and scientific insight that supports objective education involving the community surrounding pet hair care. The Beauty Brains podcast, sharing their honesty and integrity towards education, helps my chosen career just as much as caring for my own family's skin and hair needs. Ah, well, we're glad we can help. Yeah, and I do love fellow pet owners, so glad that there's a little correlation between the human grooming industry and the pet grooming industry. All right, Valerie, it looks like that's uh, come to the end of our time. Yeah, so the show's over today. Next time we're going to cover a couple cool topics in skincare, having to do with product formats, how to know when to get rid of the product, and specifically more ingredient questions. If you want to ask a question about beauty products, you can click the link in the show notes or record one on your phone. We love those audio questions and email it to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. I do prefer the audio questions because they sound better on the podcast and it helps break up the voice a little. Yeah, it mixes things up a little bit. All right. Well, thank you for listening. If you get a chance, don't forget to go over to iTunes. It takes just a couple seconds and leave us a review. It not only helps other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer, but helps us make the show a better experience tailored to what you want. And you can follow us on our social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at TheBeautyBrains2018. On Twitter, we're just at TheBeautyBrains. And we also have a Facebook page. I should also say, Valerie, the Beauty Brains are now on Patreon. So if you want to support the show, Patreon is the best way to do it. Uh, We're kind of moving away from the advertising model, and so we don't do paid product reviews, and we don't do recommendations, although if you email Valerie, she'll tell you what chelating shampoo to use. (laughs) Uh, But And that's just a way, I think you could remain more objective out there if you're not taking money from brands, even though that doesn't, you know, we say that does not affect 
our opinion on things or what we're communicating, it's hard to not have that affect you even on a subconscious level. So we're looking at the Patreon model. If you like what we do and want to support what we do, you can go to Patreon and, uh, you know, chip in a little bit to help keep the lights on here at Brains Publishing. And incidentally, Valerie, since we started this, we actually have some uh, Patreon or patrons, I think they're called. Since these are our first and earliest Beauty Brains patrons, I thought I would mention their names. We have Emily D as a patron, Kimberly R, Kimberly C, and Mario. Actually, so we've got two Kimberleys. Uh, all the Kimberleys, uh, come on board, Patreon train. <laughs> Thank you all so much for your support. We really appreciate uh, that you've been able to donate what you can and that you love the show as much as we love doing it. I also want to mention, Perry, as a lover of products, I do have nothing against samples. Oh, well, of course. <laughs> if anyone has any products they don't want. Sampling is fine. And, you know, it doesn't mean we're going to talk about it, but we will use it. <laughs> Well, you'll use it anyway. Yeah. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. And remember to be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everybody. 